The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. Episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Podcast episode 222 for the week of June 27th, 2010. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight are Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Thank you, Sawyer, and uh, hats off again to the U.S. soccer team who gave it one heck of a try. Uh, we went out, we went out in a blaze of glory, at least. Indeed, and same to the England fans as well. Indeed. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. I'm just going to say, gee whiz, and I'll explain that later. (laughs) Gee whiz, you have me worried now. And welcome back, Gina Hurley. Hey, thank you, Sawyer. Glad you're back with us again. Me too. All right, and so with that, we've got the crew. Now let's get started with our first topic. And that was a very big impending announcement that's to be made by President Obama on tomorrow or today, depending on when you're listening to this, June 28, 2010. It's going to be talking a little bit more about global cooperation and other items going on. So uh, do you think that this announcement about uh, cooperation between other nations and other items is going to be big or just another brick in the wall? I think it's just going to be another brick in the wall. Um, I'm looking at a, um, a Space News article now dated uh, Friday, June 25th uh, by Amy Clamper here. And she, the review that she gives uh, on the bottom, uh, basically other stated goals, increase assurance and resilience of mission essential functions, uh, pursue human and robotic initiatives, develop innovative technologies. When have we heard that before? Uh, and improve uh, space, space and Earth's, Earth's solar uh, observation capabilities. Again, it sounds like a lot of what we've kind of already heard before. I think there's there's more emphasis here on international cooperation, you know, a la the International Space Station model. Question is, is some of this international cooperation a good thing or maybe not so much? Um, that kind of remains to be seen at this point. When a, there's there's a follow-up article to this that we're going to discuss in a few minutes that kind of makes me scratch my head a little bit. Yeah, I, I believe international cooperation is good. Uh, obviously, we couldn't have the International Space Station without it. But maybe there's some things that, I don't know, maybe don't need that type of model to work and work correctly. You know, with this being a, uh, a speech about space policy... This is something that's going to take some time to filter down to uh, Administrator Bold and then to to others to 
to digest what it means for them to put into marching orders for their agency. Yeah, again, I think the, the ISS model could work in certain areas, like if you're talking about long-range exploration, sure, but you know, if you're talking, and, and we're going to discuss this, I guess, in the next topic, um, if you're talking something that I think reflects on national security, then maybe international cooperation isn't the way to go. I believe this next topic, we can still continue to talk about it because it's continuing to discuss cooperation amongst nations. However, this one focuses mainly on global positioning satellites or GPS satellites. And this article is very interesting. Does anybody want to give a little bit of a background on it? Because it could be interpreted many different ways. So in this article, I'm seeing where President Obama is... Looks like they're considering international cooperation on GPS. And previously, I guess the U.S. has had their own GPS constellation. Europe has had their NAV satellites and the same thing with Russia. And it looks like uh, there's an interest in changing that and having some cooperation. But, um, you know, I see a statement in the article where it says to augment but not replace GPS capabilities. And um, it, it's kind of tough for me to, to see how you can blend uh, national interests and security interests for the U.S. with international partners when you're sharing maybe each other's systems but not having control and command capabilities. Yeah, well, the article uh, we're referring to, by the way, is uh, written by uh – Andy Pastor here from uh, the Wall Street Journal. It's actually dated tomorrow, June 28th. Uh, it states here that uh, it reflects the president's desire to have Washington and various other foreign governments increasingly share funding and expertise on major projects while you know, negotiating conflicts, if possible, and exchanging more data about orbiting debris and other hazards in space. Um, the... Uh, uh, the policy papers call for more international cooperation too, and that feeds into the space news article that uh, uh, we just we just kicked around. Um, the problem is, though, that the policy, the position paper that is going to be released also tomorrow, I'm guessing, and uh, Mr. Pastor makes this observation, um, doesn't exactly spell out which countries are going to be invited to take part. Um, but uh, it, it sounds to me like it's open participation to you know allies and other established space powers. And now he mentions here such as China and Russia and emerging powers, including India and Brazil. Now, I think the idea is to try to defray the cost of the, the GPS constellation in general. Um, the Air Force has been sort of making some commentary about this just being too darn much to shoulder themselves. And, um, but is it wise to bring in, you know, international partners on something like the global positioning system? I, I kind of question the wisdom on that. Unless you're talking about allies that are really, really, really staunch, you know, go USA type folks. Um, yeah. Okay, fine. But, you know, the way the geopolitical world is kind of set up, that could turn on a dime. So do we really, really want to go ahead and invite 
a potential, you know, adversary in on something as critical as GPS. My thought is, if you were the one that launched the satellite, then you're the one that should be controlling it. Now, with the International Space Station, that's a different story because multiple countries have been building it. So when you think about right. that aspect of it, there it's acceptable. In this case, it's one country that's launching it, building it, sending it, etc. In that case, it should be your satellite and your satellite alone. Yeah, and, and, yeah I mean, I mean, GPS is also really critical. It's not just used for, by the Air Force and the military. I mean, every time you turn on your Garmin or, or your, your iPhone or your Droid or whatever, uh, or TomTom, you're using that constellation. You're using the same constellation the military is using, so... It affects you guys. It affects everybody. So, yeah, I think both the um, Amy Clamper U.S. Uh, space I mean, U.S. Uh, Space News article and this in this article by uh, Andy Pastor in the uh, Wall Street Journal kind of sort of complement each other. Um, but in a way, we're talking about cooperation. And again, on on some levels, indeed, the ISS model works, as Sawyer pointed out. It works out extraordinarily well. The ISS is again a wonderful project. I think also that could be a blueprint to go go to Mars actually, or go back to the moon. Even. Um, but to do something that theoretically has national security implications, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of on on the on the fence with that. Alrighty then. So I believe we have another story that kind of flows into this. And this was a letter written by Senator-slash-former-astronaut John Glenn. And Gene, since you wrote an article about this on our blog, which can be accessed from TalkingSpaceOnline.com and just click on Team Blog, I think you'd be a good one to talk a little bit about this letter that he wrote. Yeah, well, the letter was actually um, pretty well-crafted in that it, it basically said, said that, uh, you know, this is where, where we are currently, this is how we got here. But he made several uh, recommendations as to uh, what should happen uh, from this point forward. And one of the recommendations he, he gave was to try to continue to fly the space shuttle. Um, he indicated, too, and I think we said the same thing here, too, that the shuttle was actually designed for 100 flights. And each one of these are going to be retired well beyond, uh, or I mean, well, well short of all that. I think um, the only, I think Discovery is going to have like maybe what, 20, 38 flights under its belt before it retires. So um, it's, you know, we, we, we didn't really use the system. Now, some other folks that work on these birds have told me that was, you know, that 100 flight assumption was based on a X amount of, uh, you know, a flight, an X amount flight rate. We've never been able to reach that. So, um, you know, it, it may, that 100, um, flight rate may be, maybe neither here nor there, but, um, the, the idea is this, I, and I realize what, 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 uh, what Senator Glenn is trying to say here. He's trying to say, look, this is our only, the world's only right now heavy lift capability. And he's right. The shuttle is right now the, the it as far as heavy lift, lift capacity. It's the only HLV around. 
um, why don't we go ahead and try to extend it? Just just keep on flying this thing until um, until such time a viable heavy lift replacement is ready. Now, I'm I'm a shuttle hugger. I freely admit it. Um, but the that bird has flown. In all honesty, now we've been because we've been slowly shutting down the shuttle program since 2004, and and the Bush announcement saying that um, the shuttle was going to go away, and Constellation, along with the Orion crew exploration vehicle, is waiting on the other side, um, or so we thought. The problem is this: there's a whole bunch of supply. Uh, supply lines that have been shut that have been slowly shutting down along with the shuttle to the point where a lot of these little parts made by companies that may not even exist anymore um, just we just don't have these parts anymore it's the same thing with trying to restart the external tank uh, operation over at Mashud. Um, that would take about maybe what two to three years estimate the estimate is from what I've heard. Um, so to, in order to restart, to try to restart shuttle, you may actually be creating a longer gap than the one you're trying to avoid. And in the blog, I linked to a, uh, a rather interesting little essay that another, uh, self-described shuttle hugger, uh, wrote back in the uh, back around in August of 2008 none other than NASA's Wayne Hill in his blog basically saying the same thing um, and he describes that process a heck of a lot more elegantly uh, than than I have I think I just was really unwieldy on this but he, he read that that essay again it's link, linked on on that blog entry and on our on our, on our website the blog entry is called Shut, no, shuttle huggers lament and um, he describes the reason why we can't fly, we can't continue to fly shuttle past where we are now. And mind you, that was written, you know, two summers ago. So you can just imagine where we are at this point. So continuing the shuttle as far as a, a heavy lift vehicle, I think that, again, that bird's flown. Um, so I think that's, a, that's impossible. Also, my question to everybody that is, you know, sort of putting the whole plan in question right now, you know, the whole new policy plan in question right now, and saying, well, we get, we've got to keep the shuttle flying, we've got to keep the shuttle flying. Guys, where the devil were, was everybody when um, around 2006, 2007, when we realized that that, that, that Constellation's Orion through exploration vehicle and the Ares-1 maybe a little further out more than, than what we expected. Maybe if, if, if red flags were being waved back then, we might have had a chance to reverse course a little bit on, on the space transportation system and kept it flying. Um, you know, where was everybody shouting from the rooftops then? You know, now everybody's shouting from the rooftops and you know, it's too late, number one. Number two is, are they shouting from the rooftops because it's safe to do so because they know it's it's impossible and it can't happen? So, you know, that, that's I'm going to leave that door open for folks to walk through if they want. Um, but that, that that's the thing that jumped out on me as far as the Glenn article is concerned. Um, he does bring out a couple of other 
uh, objectives uh, here. Um, one is, you know, again, to extend the shuttle, which I've already said is, is I think, a, a pipe dream. Uh, maximize research on the ISS. Now, that is, if I'm not mistaken, that's part of this policy, correct? Folks? Correct. I mean, yes. Right. Where, you know, the, the other thing, too, is use the International Space Station for long-term uh, Mars mission training. Well, in a way, we already are doing that because we're doing the long duration, the long duration end of it. We've got about six crew up there at any given time. And so, again, we are doing that. We are using that to find out how humans will not only interact with themselves, but how, how the human organism will, will take a long-term space flight. So, again, we're, we're already doing that with the International Space Station. Um, develop a fully – the other one he writes is develop a fully tested uh, replacement heavy lift capable vehicle. I believe um, – and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, there is a call out. Congress may, is planning on making that call if they haven't made that already. Um, I, think 60 con- no, I think 60 members of Congress have already said we need a new heavy lift capability, and we'd like to direct NAS- NASA to go ahead and, and design one like ASAP. So that heavy lift cap- capabilities may be in work. Uh, but that, I think, is a decision, too, that has to also come from the White House. And I don't know if that decision will be pending or not. Um, that's something Mr. Obama and, and, and the White House may have to look at and look at. Um, Long term, he suggests uh, robotic missions of Mars and other destinations such as such as asteroids. Well, we just had Hayabusa return from uh, from an asteroid uh, last about two weeks ago or three, three weeks ago. So that falls right into line, so we're kind of already doing that. Um, robotic exploration of Mars, well, shoot, that's continuing constantly. We Opportunities over there, Spirit is sort of sleeping right now, but it's doing that. We have a, um, a whole constellation of uh, satellites orbiting Mars right now, doing uh, um, whatever, you know, whatever uh, uh, observations that need to be done there. So, And we have... Uh, uh, another rover that's going to be going to Mars shortly, I believe. So that's already happening. Um, continue ISS research um, as, lo- as long as it is making substantial contributions. Um, again, we're extending ISS out to 2020 at least, so I think we're already going to be doing that. Increased preparation on planning for Mars. Um, is that part of, I guess that would be part of the, the new policy, correct? So I guess that's what we're sort of doing with the new policy, correct? Correct. Okay. Are countries already sure trying to do that? Yeah, I mean, example, like the Mars 500. That's exactly what I was about to say. The Mars 500 mission is is kind of also in line with that. Um, just trying to understand human interaction um, in a, in close quarters. Fourth point, uh, long term, he's saying determine Earth to Mars or assembled in Earth orbit to Mars. Um, I'm not too sure what 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 uh, Senator Glenn is referring to there, um, but I guess he's referring to the route that we're going to take to Mars. Um, set a firm schedule and then go for Mars. Those are, those are the things he, he, want, he wants to do. Um, he... Uh, 
I mean, he's he's making some some lucid points in this thing, but in a way, I think we're we're kind of in a roundabout way already doing some of this. Objective, I'm guess, or at least the vague objective behind this new policy is a Mars shot. Um, nothing is put on paper, and and I think that's that's what everybody's kind of sort of jittery about, and that's what's led to letters like this. I have to say, I'm a, as much as I'm a, a John Glenn fan, as um, as his political career and as his um, NASA career, I'm surprised that this is the statement that's come from him. As a legislator and a shuttle astronaut himself, he would have intimate knowledge to know that you cannot just snap your fingers right now and have these um, this workforce or this um, supply chain turn the lights on to factories again and get things rolling. I mean, this is in a process of just reopening um, assembly lines. You have to have NASA recertify all of these vendors, contractors, subcontractors, and, you know, every screw that goes into the space shuttle needs to have some safety certification on it. And that's time, money, and resources for NASA. So, But like in reality, Gene how long said, does it take to recertify something? As much as, as much as a year. Yeah, or longer. Right. So even if you went out to the many hundreds of multiple places, I mean, you would need a, an extensive large team to go and recertify all of these vendors at this point, number one. And number two, I think Senator Glenn's math is uh, very flawed in the sense that he's worried about $50 million seats um, from Russia to the space station. And yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that we have to fork over that cash, but he's saying as long as we kept two shuttles flying a year, we would offset the costs. Well, two shuttles flying a year, regardless if we launch two or five, you're still spending $200 million a month to keep all the facilities and that entire workforce employed to keep shuttle operating. So $200 million a month times 12 months in a year, I don't know, it seems to me a little bit more economic that buying seats at $50 million a shot is probably a better deal for us right now. now. I am the last person that wants to see this gap continue to stay widened, but I think Gene's right. That bird's flown. It's it, The train's left the station. It's It would take an extreme amount of resources pushing uphill to get this restarted. And you know what the third shuttle's for if they fly to? Parts. Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, Mr. Museum uh, Curator, uh, we can send you two-thirds of a shuttle. Would that be okay? Yeah, yeah, I mean, and I hope to God we're not, you know, we were almost to that point, good Lord, uh, at, at one point in the program, uh, where we were literally, and I think um, a lot of folks got a big slap in the hand on this, and I think this was part of, and somebody's going to correct me if I'm wrong, I know know it. Uh, this might have been part of the uh, the Rogers Commission discovery uh, during the uh, just after the Challenger accident, where folks were actually cannibalizing parts from one orbiter and putting them in, into another. So, you know, we we want that's something we want to avoid. Now, if I could just go back to something that we were mentioning a little bit earlier about uh, policy and short-term and long-term objectives. Mm-hmm. If this were the time period where John Kennedy got up and 
said, I lead this nation to commit itself to achieving a goal before this decade is out of landing the man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. If you had heard that, say I if you would have thought that he was nuts. Everybody did. Even people within NASA thought he was crazy. Um, now President did. Obama and is planning to have man on an asteroid by 2025. How many of us still think that he's crazy and how many of us think that this would turn into a Kennedy-esque style accomplishment? Well, it's nuts. It's nuts. Because I just don't see the point. I mean, the moon is our satellite. It's going to follow us wherever we go. Why do we want to land on an asteroid that barely has any gravity? It's certainly not preparing us to land on Mars. But what is the point of us going into space if we're not going to establish a permanent presence, either on the moon or Mars? So to try and have target practice landing on an asteroid with little to no gravity and little to no atmosphere, I, I don't really see the point of it. I, to me, asteroids, what we need to find out is how to stop them from crashing into our planet. So we need enough data to figure out, A, how to blow them up, which is probably a bad plan, or B, how to nudge them out of the way. And if we can achieve that, I don't understand why we have to spend so many resources to try and land or dock with an asteroid. It seems ludicrous. Again, I'm in Gina's port here. Um, There's an interesting article um, uh, in uh, USA Today um, I guess it was about maybe uh, about six days ago by uh, Tracy Watson, Watson um, that basically put that plan into some sort of perspective. It was entitled, Obama plan to land on an asteroid may be unrealistic for 2025. Um, she's also, she also cites an interview that she, she did with uh, Rusty Schweikert, who explained that, um, you know, you don't really land on an asteroid. You sort of pull up to one and dock with it. Um, and I'll quote the article here, uh, quote, um, you pull up to one dock with it and then getting away from it, all you have to do is sneeze and you're gone, quote, close quote. Um, uh, Schweikert said that he envisioned a spacecraft hovering next to the asteroid and occasionally firing its thrusters to keep it in place. Now, the only educational thing, I guess, from a, from a, from a uh, preparedness standpoint, was this would be our, our our real first deal for a human being to go out into deep space and go ahead and and, and make see if our our deep space equipment actually works. Um, but other than a demonstration flight, I don't see any scientific. I mean, any any real value for a human being to go ahead and try to dock with an asteroid. Well, I mean, I'll, give, I'll give you one benefit, and that's just as uh, the fact that if you have that as a goal, it's mm-hmm. going to drive a lot of technological innovation. Yeah, but but, uh, but wouldn't a trip to Mars do the same thing? Sure, and, and you know, maybe an asteroid would be seen as a as an intermediate goal. Right. You know, that, that's, that's what I'm seeing. And, uh, but... I mean, you can easily do this robotically, is what I'm saying. I mean, you, Hayabusa is already as a as a as a test flight. Um, even if we didn't get a lot of soil samples from the asteroid with Hayabusa, it simply says that something like this, an asteroid rendezvous, robotically is possible. Um, so I, I just don't see if it's worth the risk of the the risk of a human life. 
to go out to an asteroid to dock, just simply dock with it. Um, I think you can probably easily do that robotically. And again, this, we're, we're venturing into the robots versus man deal, but um, I, I still say that this this would be a, a good place for for, for, for a robot, and not for a human. And I agree with Gina. The only reason why you'd probably want to go out to an asteroid is learn how to deflect it, or maybe learn how to how to deal with this thing in some way, shape, or form. Should it should it become a threat to Earth? Oh, and speaking of uh, asteroids, NASA has a, uh, a spacecraft that's uh, been out on a several year mission. It's called uh, Deep Impact slash Epoxy E P O X I. And I read where, uh, by the way, if anybody happened to wave, it just went by Earth today, uh, which is June 27th. It picked up uh, 3,400-some-mile-an-hour in a slingshot to go rendezvous with a comet Hartley-2. Point is, Hartley-2 was not its prime uh, target for this next phase of its mission. It was another comet that they've lost. They couldn't get a trajectory on it early enough or you know recent enough for course changes that would need to be made so they went to the alternate target and that's I'm sure that you know when you get to planning a mission you'd pick something where you knew exactly where it was what the flight path orbit etc was going to be but you know just a thought yeah I, again that's a prime example of a using stuff that we've already got but already but also B kind of sort of salvage you know I don't want to say salvaging a mission but but some quick thinking you know, hey, there's another opportunity. Let's take it and jump it on board. So yeah, that, that's kind of a neat, neat deal. And I wish it all. I wish that whole team all well. And I'll be, I'll be glued watching, uh, watching that mission take shape. So I believe that we can move on, and then we have one last topic to discuss, and that was the announcement that they will be in fact changing the dates of the last two shuttle launches. And the current date changes are now for STS-133, originally scheduled for a launch in September, is now supposed to actually launch October 29th, 2010. And the launch that was supposed to occur originally in August, then November, is now scheduled for February 28th, 2011. And that was STS-134 aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavour. And if you guys remember, in the very first episode of this new season, we made predictions about whether the shuttle was going to end in 2010 like it was supposed to or not. Can you guys remember everybody's answers? Yeah, and I think we all said no way. I, I think we all said uh, no, you know, because of weather or, or technical glitches or whatever. We thought that something was going to bite us and we weren't going to be able to complete that. And it looks like we were correct. Well, here was what we actually said as it was heard in episode 202. Do you think NASA will launch all of their shuttle missions by December of 2010? Uh, Do I think they're going to get all of them off? Maybe not. But, again, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Then I think there's going to be slips. So that's an I don't know, I guess. (laughs) Gina, what's your prediction? They will or will not get them all off on time? They likely know they're not going to get them all off by September 2010. But me being an optimist, I'm going to say no, they're not going to get them all out. Kind of funny how history repeats itself. Yes. Yeah. That's, 
that's that's not new changing schedules. Anything else about Discovery and Endeavor? I think we're good to go. Uh, um, I could talk about Endeavor for a while if you want me to. <laughs> I know you can. <laughs> so, Sawyer, what's the news on Endeavor? <laughs> <laughs> She's mine. Ah, yeah, okay. Well, I know she looked she looked real good on your front lawn there, there Sawyer, but I think she'd just be a little bit too big. Well, she could stay in my room. <laughs> All 122 feet of her, right? Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, as we discuss ways for me to steal and never, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> as we continue along, we have one last fun little story, and Mark had himself a little bit of fun, I believe, down at the Astronaut Hall of Fame in Titusville. Am I correct? Yes, sir, and thanks to Twitter, and I wish I could remember where I saw this and who tweeted it, but there was a mention of, uh, of something that I pursued. And uh, by the way, I don't know if anybody else knew this, but there were dozens, literally dozens, of good old-fashioned chemical rockets launched this past Saturday, June 26th. Now, here we are talking about uh, delays and changes in the shuttle launch schedule. There were some kids that launched rockets Saturday. I don't see what the big deal is. But uh, let, me, let me back up and tell you what I went to. I went to the first ever NASA Family Education Night. This was a first ever event at Kennedy Space Center. It's part of a NASA program called the Summer of Innovation. And uh, NASA has a page that has a a video uh, greeting and invitation from the ISS and astronaut Tracy Caldwell Dyson. And the Summer of Innovation, uh, I want to start over. Uh, can I at least part-time volunteer to be fifth through eighth grade? Because these kids have got some things that, to me, good grief, really fun stuff to do. So, so what it was at uh, the Astronaut Hall of Fame, it was open to 5th through 8th graders and their families, and it was literally, uh, you know, half a dozen probably plus different areas that were – where there were demonstrations and, uh, and presentations going on simultaneously, and you could go from, you know, from, from place to place, checking the schedule and see what you could get to next. Uh, one of the <laughs> – one of the fun parts for anybody was uh, an astronaut encounter, and they had two shuttle astronauts. They had John McBride and Bob Springer, and uh, the session I sat in, Bob Springer talked to the group, and that was the first time I'd been at one of these events, and it was a lot of fun because he uh, – talking to him afterwards, he says, well, he said, I kind of talk to my audience. I, f I get an idea of what things are going to interest them, and I, I tailor what I have to say to, to meet that. And I think that's just phenomenal. To me, I admire teachers incredibly because the ones, like in this case, the shuttle astronauts that have that knack for, for being able to communicate and to excite the kids. And what this is all about, going back to the Summer of Innovation, um, this NASA Family Night, the idea is to fill in during the summer where kids have a little bit of a slack time for learning and, and give them things that are going to be interesting, exciting, something to look forward to. And, of course, it's on the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, the STEM 
subjects. And uh, a lot of the people that, that staff this were from the getting my names of organizations mixed up here. It was from the Educator Resource Center and the Exploration Station. And uh, talking to one of the ladies that was talking about rocket launches, I got to launch a rocket. And I was busy talking to the public affairs people that were taking me around. And so I didn't build one. And I think the, the, the teacher that was part of that was kind of disappointed that I didn't want to build a rocket. And I, I did, but just too much to do and not enough time. But the rockets were, uh, they called them Alka rockets. It was made out of construction paper. It had a little pop-out, uh, kind of a, a pop-out thing in the bottom. And you put water in it and you threw an Alka-Seltzer part of an Alka-Seltzer tablet in and you put the top on it and you set the rocket on the ground and the Alka-Seltzer fizzed up and it would pop up and it would go anywhere from a couple of feet to, there was one that I I heard and I could tell it went up probably five or ten feet and it was in an outside tent and uh, there were kids that their expressions ranged from, oh, well that didn't go that well but that was still pretty interesting to kids that went, wow! And so to me that was that was something that kind of really illustrated in an excellent way how good NASA is at 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 communicating and at, and at teaching and at making this stuff come alive. Um, this event overall, it was fun, it was educational, and it was superb. Uh, they, they had one section that was called the G-Wiz, and the three the three people that were conducting the demonstrations there uh, they had the crowd cry out, gee whiz, when something dramatic happened. And uh, dramatic ranged from uh, taking liquid nitrogen and freezing a, a plain old drinking straw and showing what happened to it, to uh, taking a, a balloon that you, in some places you might see people making uh, twisty animals and art out of little balloon, tubular balloons. Well, they froze one in the liquid nitrogen and showed us at the at the bottom of it there was liquid air. And, you know, so it illustrated some things. There was a kind of a classroom demonstration where we got some uh, some ideas of what, a, what vacuum does. And I'm kind of annoyed at Twitter because I don't have a, a smartphone, and so I was sending out text messages that were supposed to bounce into Twitter Saturday evening, and none of them made it until like 1 o'clock in the morning. And so I'm home at 1 a.m., and I look on Twitter, and there's nothing there. And I thought, oh, that was great. I wanted to generate some interest on this. And the next morning I look, and they all popped out sometime after 1 or 2 a.m. Eastern times. So kind of annoyed at Twitter, but uh, that's the nature of the beast. Um they had uh, launching into space, living in space, what it's like to be an astronaut. That was where we got to meet an astronaut and talk to him. They had something really neat, science on a sphere, in the museum there at the at the Hall of Fame. And the, the guy that was demoing that, he says, i got to show you this, he said. And, and he, uh, he put up a, a sphere in the middle of the room. It showed a spinning Earth. And at one point, he put up the uh, Star Wars Death Star on there. And he said, kids always say they want one for their room when they see that. But uh, it was a lot of fun. It really was. They, uh, 
they did so many demonstrations and presentations. We we subjected this poor innocent marshmallow to the harsh vacuum of space and saw what happened to it, and saw the effect when it came back to normal atmospheric pressure. And kind of illustrates why a spacesuit's important. There was a uh, a young girl there that she, you know, they were talking about space food, and she said, "My aunt is a uh, one of the people that cooks for the astronauts on the." on their meal that they have pre-launch. And so a lot of the kids that were there were families of uh, the, the NASA Kennedy Space Center employees, contractors, employees. And I just thought it was an extraordinary thing. And uh, the public affairs folks that I talked to said that they had 700 tickets that they had sold out and that there was going to be an event in July and one more in August. So if you're in the Central Florida area, if you're going to be there, uh, check into it, look into it, and if you need any more information, uh, send me a, a message on Twitter. I'm Mark Ratterman on Twitter, and I'll be glad to find out more for you if you if you don't find it uh, on your own. I gotta move. That's just way too much fun over there. I mean, that, that yeah. sounds like a really cool, cool, cool day. You ran the gamut. It oh. seems. I found out what a what a MAG is. That was from astronaut Bob Springer. That's a maximum absorbency garment, which would be called a depends in, in common parlance. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. It really was. And the uh, public affairs folks that took me around, you know, I, I got a, a message on Twitter. It says, thanks for you taking your time. And I'm thinking – me taking my time, I got to find out where I can get a fifth through eighth grader to borrow, if nothing else, to, to get me into the next one. I've got a I've got a, a willing victim over here in uh, uh, Jersey. Come on down. <laughs> we'll have to. We can we can. And you both don't need me, right? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> and, yeah, and you're just your average twelve year old. You must have some cousins, Sawyer. Bring one of them. I do, in fact. There you go. That's your passport. There we go. Also, one more thing. If there's anybody uh, that, that hears the show that's in the education field, or if you know people that are in the education field, um, I know there are teachers that listen to our show that, that know all about this, and there's one lady that has a blog post that's absolutely phenomenal in describing some of this. And um, But get in touch with me. I'd like to talk more about outreach and, and education for students and uh, maybe it's something we can talk about later on in the show. Definitely. Education is a very, very important thing. And even though I'm not an officially licensed educator, I do, in fact, teach children and other adults. So I'm in the education field as well, specifically with what you mentioned before, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And it's really a great thing, especially when you can make learning fun for kids or they don't even realize they're learning that that's when you know you're doing it right, and it's great. And that's a big part of what you do with the Challenger Learning Center, right? Indeed, yeah. Let me ask you, Sawyer. I, I know you've told me, and I've forgotten the details, but how long ago were your eyes – was it when your eyes were open to, to the interest in space, space flight, the whole, that whole business? How long ago has it been since you first realized, wow, what is this all about? How long has it been? Uh, approaching three years. It's been an amazing three years, hasn't it? <laughs> Do you think? No going back either, right? Oh, no way. I yeah. wouldn't take back a single moment of it. Yeah. 
and think of the person that uh, that was there at the Challenger Learning Center when you were first there that 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 said some things that that caught your attention and kind of sparked your imagination a little bit. And now I'm working uh, with them and teaching them new things. It's great. Uh, I I just think it's phenomenal what you do and what the people that uh, that have been part of part of you learning so much. Uh, you know, I look to you as as an expert in so many things. Well, so I I appreciate your hard work and study, Sawyer. You Thanks. It's all one of those us. things where if you have a passion for it, you'll research it and read up on it, and you'll follow through with it if you have the passion for it. Well, hopefully we can, uh, you know, NASA with their Summer of Innovation, the Family Education Night. Hopefully those will will become even more real for lots of kids this summer. Indeed, and I highly support that. And if I'm correct, I do believe NASA has actually been doing webcasts during the week as part of the uh, as part of this program. And for those of you who are like yours truly, but may not have the opportunity to go ahead and participate in some of these NASA events, just try doing it yourself. I mean, we had a, a weekend today where I had all four of my my, my lone niece and my three nephews, we were out flying model rockets, you know, those little Estes and Quest rockets and things like that. We had about maybe 10 or 11 of them that they had built um, over the past few years out on the firing line. And um, I'm probably going to write a little bit of an essay about the events on that. But, you know, try to see if you can do it yourself. Take your child to a, to a science center. Just try to see what, what happens to them. Just, just look at look at things. Expose them to new things. And... and who knows? You might light a spark. Indeed. Also, just so you know, I, I just double-checked it now. NASA is, in fact, doing uh, virtual sessions uh, called Virtual Summer Science Camp every Thursday at 3 p.m. through July 29, 2010. So if that's something that you're interested in, it, it would be really neat to watch. And again, it's not just for kids. Anybody can watch and join in on the chat with that. Also, um, for a lot of other people, they may not know, NASA has a lot of uh, resources on its website for educators. There's a lot of uh, free curriculum that's um, easily downloadable for a whole range of topics, everything from, like, meteorology to astronautics. And there's quite a lot of good information there, and they divvy it up by grade level. So, um, you know, more or less, it's probably what students at your school district are focused on in terms of curriculum or could augment or complement the curriculum. So um, there's quite a lot of information there if you know a teacher or you are a teacher yourself. Indeed. And with that, thank you once again very much, Mark, for sharing that because I, I really wish I could have been there. It sounds like it was such an interesting and just thought-provoking experience for any age. Definitely. And, uh, you know, just as kind of a promo, maybe I'll uh, find my tweets that I had from that evening and retweet them, and uh, tag it with Talking Space. So, would would be yeah, that would be kind of cool. And with that, I believe that wraps up this episode. So, thank you once again for joining us for Talking Space, episode two twenty two. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always a lot of fun, Sawyer, and I'm still regretting that I couldn't be down there with with Mark. That was sounds like it was one heck of an event. Same. Thank you, Mark, for being so lucky and being able to share that with us. Uh, glad the opportunity popped up. Glad I could go. It, uh, it, it looked too good to be true when I first saw it. 
And I want to thank Andrea Farmer, the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center Public Affairs that took me around, and also uh, NASA's Kennedy Space Center Public Affairs, Tracy Young. I appreciate their time and uh, their their being willing to answer my newbie questions about the educational experience. They they made a definite difference, and I appreciate their their help. And thank you as well, Gina Hurley, for joining us. Oh, it's good to be back, Sawyer. Thanks. Once again, glad to have you with us. And as always, glad to have you, the listener, with us. And have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. <laughs>